Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I'm your host, Teos Abadia, and you know, today I am joined by Sean, as I always am. As you can see, uh, that there is no indication at all that he could be, say, on vacation. No, no, he's, he's here. Yeah, so that's great. And um, yeah, thanks, Sean, for joining us. Uh, feel free to chime in at any time, my good friend. Uh, you know, you don't have to say anything you don't want to if the issues don't catch your attention. Uh, but, you know, I think that because you're, you're, you've been a little quiet today, uh, I'm going to say, Sean, that, that maybe uh, we'll leave our listener corner tweet bag, toot bag, Patreon missive for next time. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, so we'll touch on those next time. We've got some good questions. Uh, and I'm just going to go through the news pretty quickly because we have a very, very exciting guest. Um, and the other thing is, I hope you don't mind, but uh, for the news segment, I did invite a few other people. Or you know, in case you're not making any comments, you know enough comments, then I'll I'll bring in those other guests. So, um, and and folks who are on the podcast, uh, there may be an image of a flump where Sean is because Sean is away on vacation. That's the bit. Um, so uh, let's start with the big news that uh, certainly made AlphaStream.org get like a billion hits. Uh, the D&D Creator Summit. Um, I, Teos, have been blogging about the summit. Um, two parts you can find on my blog. One, I just took an overall snapshot of what the summit tried to cover. And then a second piece that looks specifically at how the agenda landed uh, at times not very well with uh, the attendees uh, and how we worked with wizards to change that, how wizards pivoted and did a really good job of, of, of um, listening to what the attendees, both in person and virtual, were trying to, to want it out of the event and kind of how to make that happen. Um, so you can see the full breakdown there, but I'm going to just go over it at a broad level for those who uh, maybe don't love blogs or, or yeah, looking for it to be covered here. Um, so the Creator Summit took place on April 3rd with about 30 in-person attendees and about 100 virtual attendees. Um, there were a lot of Wizards of the Coast staff present, and this was a really, really significant effort by Wizards of the Coast. Uh, kind of impressive when you really think about it. You know, flying 30 people into their offices, putting them in hotel rooms, uh, devoting tons and tons of staff to be present. Uh, both to answer questions and jot down things that were being asked of them uh, to have follow-ups for later. Uh, senior staff, the CEO was there, all very impressive. Um, and it didn't feel shallow or hollow. It felt like this was an investment they were making in the community, uh, both to make right after what happened with the OGL fiasco, to try to begin that process of making right, I think they'd say. Um, and also to create a dialogue with all the people that were there. And there were a lot of questions I had going in. Um, you can read my blog post about what I thought before we ever got started. Um, but then, yeah, the, the, the actual event that took place was, was surprising with, with really how well they, they approached it, given so many things. And, and I'm coming at this from my professional background where I'm often at these kinds of events, and they can be pretty hollow. And I'm, I often have had to run these events and running them well are it's a very difficult task to do. So uh, I thought that, that Wizards really approached it in a good way. So what took place? Uh, the president and CEO, Cynthia, Will Cynthia Williams, opened the event and made it clear in her opening remarks that they were here to listen to us. That was somewhat true as we came to see. I mean, it was true. But 
what really ended up happening was there was a difference between the agenda that Wizards of the Coast wanted to present and the agenda, or let's say the, the items and goals, items for discussion and the goals that a lot of attendees had. And so that, you'll see how that came out. Um, but one of the things we did was we got to see the virtual tabletop. Now, this had been showcased the week prior on the D&D Direct videos. So you can go to YouTube, the D&D channel, find that, that demo. But we got to actually do it hands-on for those of us in person. Kale Stutzman, who is the VTT game director and apparently a mastering Dungeons listener. Hello, Kale. Um, Kale Stutzman ran it. was really nice to talk to. He did a great job of walking through um, the game that they're, their game, the the platform that they're putting together, I should say. It is really beautiful, though it's clearly in the alpha stage. This is a gorgeous VTT. If you saw the D&D Direct footage, you know, you can swirl your camera around and move around because it's using the Unreal Engine and it looks like a really cool video game in the sense of the trees, the architecture, the running water in the brook that's by the tavern. That was really awesome. Um, it is still in the stage where they're, it's pre-alpha, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's got crashes that happen. Uh, they had several team members on hand to walk us through jumping back in if that happened. So they clearly expected it. They were writing down things in notebooks for, you know, any questions we asked, any issues that happened. Um, and the approach to the virtual tabletop is with very little automation. Uh, what I mean by that is that in general, the philosophy, as Kale described it, is light on how the rules are enforced, but giving you everything you need to play the game. And this may be an experience that you favor. So, if, for example, you've used uh, roll 20, there are a lot of things you can do, you know, it, it isn't your turn and you can move your token around. The same is true here. You can move your mini when it's not your turn. Um, there are also things you can do. For example, if, uh, if you start moving your token, your mini, you see, oh, you know, this is the edge of where 30 feet would be, but you can move outside the room. <laughs> Nothing's stopping you from moving 180 feet instead of 30. Um, similarly, it doesn't even have to be my turn and I can attack or move. And that's fine in that the philosophy, right, which is to say there are many cases in D&D, &D, and Kale said something along the lines of this, there are many cases in D&D &D where you can attack when it's not your turn, right, like an opportunity attack, or um, someone grants you an attack. Uh, there may be something that grants you a movement, right? Uh, a monster may force you to move, that kind of thing. So all of those, none of those things are locked down, right? You have the ability to attack, move, use all your features at any point. And you have to be, you know, somewhat disciplined to not do that. I immediately thought of middle school games I've run where it's hard enough to get them not to move the actual things on the paper. Or, you know, I could just see a bunch of middle school kids who are just tearing away at a monster when it's not their turn. So, you know, you'd have to talk through with them or maybe in the future there'll be some sort of way to lock things down a bit. But it's really open and that is the approach that they're taking to it. Uh, we played on this really cool looking 3D map that you can see in the DN Direct video. Really nice looking and, you know, Ankhag burst from the floor and there were fires to put out with little sort of round fire minis that were down there. That was all really cool. Um, and they um, they also showed that you can bring in a 2D map. And I forget what map they pulled. That they pulled one of the kind of classic maps and they just put it on it. So you had the 3D terrain and right next to it, this like flat map that was just 2D and you could put your 3D tokens on it. Um, they said that they're not sure in the future whether they're going to allow uh, DMs to build or add, to add their own 3D assets. They said that can really hurt performance. 
But what they want to do is that the assets that D&D gives you, you will be able to build with them like Lego. So I think Kale at one point said, you know, our goal is that if you describe a room, but, you know, it's right there, but you describe it, and someone says, is there a window here? You can go, sure, and add a window there. That's a great goal. Uh, I hope that happens. Right now, these are sort of like, you know, giant plunk down the building kind of things rather than this sort of Lego approach. Uh, but it's a cool idea. And they're focused on, in step one, 2023, support all core mechanics, intuitive player user interface, uh, play and assets are intuitive, DM game controls, increase the player testing and feedback. Step two is 2024, character and miniature creation and customization, encounter and world building, a remixable content library and wider play testing. And then in 2025, right? So we're talking about the year after the anniversary. That's where they start really sharing. Uh, they're increasing the sharing of what you can do. Uh, you can use the same creation tools, but you can now share creations with each other. Community feedback loop, um, and and you know eventually release, right? So hopefully release is happening there. Um, the uh, they're going to initially roll it out to staff, then closed groups, which may include some summit attendees. It sounded like. And then to some D&D Beyond users, and it's not clear how they're going to choose D&D Beyond users, but, but apparently that's going to happen. Um, they have no cost models in place. So, for example, they don't know if your purchase that you've already made on D&D Beyond means, hey, you've unlocked that on the VTT. Or is it a slight change or a completely new buy? Um, you know, do you get all the minis for the things that you buy or do you have new minis or any none of that's known right is there a monthly fee that's different from the dnd beyond fee none of that is in place yet they are thinking about it clearly they're talking about it but it's, it's not a, a thing that they've nailed down yet um okay so that was the vtt and there was a whole presentation about it uh and as well as the hands-on demo uh, we also met with the dnd beyond team to hear about what is coming and provide feedback uh, feedback on what attendees think that D&D Beyond should do next. And, and I like this kind of format, right? So it was like, and this is true of the VTT session as well. They would tell us things, and that part is very PR, right? Very let me sell you on what I'm doing, which, hey, that's how these things work. No, no surprise there. But then they would say, and what do you think? And what would you like to see? And, and that part was great, right? There really was a lot of questions coming from the team prompting us, and we would bring up all kinds of issues. So uh, and all kinds of topics. So with the D&D Beyond team, they uh, introduced Marjorie Lehman, who is the new VP of D&D Beyond. She has been in the role about one month. So she's just getting up to speed. But she had there with her several excellent D&D Beyond staff that range in their level of time with the company. And they were there answering questions, following up, like, you know, I had someone come up at lunch and at dinner and follow up on, on questions. Uh, hey, great to see you. <laughs> and uh, taking down notes. And that was all super wonderful. You got a really nice feel of, of the, the staff wanting to, to get, you know, your feedback, which was awesome. Um, the big news that they had uh, was that they plan on having a marketplace for D&D Beyond and to allow sales of third party material. There's not a lot of clarity about how it's going to work. Like, for example, how does it work comparing to the DMs Guild? Because the DMs Guild is OBS in a particular, particular agreement. And things are locked in there. So can I take a DMs Guild product and sell it on D&D Beyond? I'm guessing not, but I don't know. Maybe they can work something out. Um, you know, can uh, this marketplace hurt the team somewhat? Because I thought of, you know, back when they used to do Unearthed Arcana articles, that workload was so high that the team had trouble keeping up. 
So if there's sort of the support for third-party material, how much does it require the team to be monitoring and adjusting this? And I don't know. Um, but the priority should be on making a great official product and then the third-party material. But it, it does create some, some neat opportunities um, and maybe contributes to some fears that this is an idea about making that sort of walled garden. Um, but of course, we all get to choose that. That's, that's a, a thing we all have a hand in. Um, they did confirm that the D&D Wizards site, the dnd.wizards.com, will be removed. Uh, everybody goes to D&D Beyond, and that's where they're starting to put things. So one of the issues we brought up was, you know, hey, please make sure that content is not lost, that errata documents, the studio blogs, you know, all these articles that have real value, both historical and informational, um, that those are copied over. So we've raised that issue. Um, they talked about how they wanted to release many more special supplements to attract fans. So if you think about the free Vecna adventure, or right now they've got a whole bunch of free movie things you can download. Um, I, I requested print support for those. So we saw the Spelljammer Monsters Compendium had a great PDF, really nicely formatted, so I could print it out or just view it on a, on a tablet. It was really nice. The later versions have been only on D&D Beyond, which isn't so nice a format to read or to have at the table or to print out. So they, they made a note of that. I don't know if that's a, something they will do. And we um, had a number, as I discussed my blog, around this time was when we had um, the, the afternoon session and we ended up with an impromptu sort of Q&A. There was actually a virtual tabletop discussion and it kept on coming up with questions of what are you going to do about dated content that uh, is problematic? Would that ever be moved into D&D Beyond? And um, how are people paid and compensated on the teams? You know, are you taking care of your freelancers? A lot of really wide ranging questions. And that was sort of like kind of trains colliding between the agenda that Wizards had expected to address and questions that really were fired up and why attendees had come and hoping to discuss these things and be a part of change they want to see at Wizards. And I, I found myself really fascinated by it. I mean, I, I also had that, right? I had issues I want to talk about, like localization and translations and things like that. Um, for example, the D&D Beyond team said that they are struggling with localizing things into other languages. And I thought, well, start with the free rules, you know? And so we ended up having a side discussion about maybe starting with the free rules because it's already something you don't expect a price tag. So you're not dealing with the inequity in pricing between countries. And you have a very core base that you could translate into several languages and see how to build that appeal, build a market that then might want to purchase things, localize further based on those experiences. So we had those kinds of great discussions, but, but there were things that you had to sort of try to get from the side instead of being front and center, you know, here are things we know you want to talk about. So it really was a big deal at the summit that attendees stood up and kind of said, we want more time to ask this variety of questions that we have around these burning issues that matter to us. And I thought that was really good. And it was indicative of, of the strength of D&D, having invited wizards, having invited so many different voices to this event, right? So I, I was overall really impressed with, how, with, with the creators that were there, um, my fellow attendees, um, and, and, and just everything they, they did to really bring those issues forward. Uh, oh, oh! look, it's another of our guests. Uh, it's, it's still Sean Merwin, but he looks completely different right now. Uh, that's great. He looks like a frog hemoth for those who are listening to the podcast. Um, so the next thing that came up was the 2024 rules. And I'll, I'll wrap up this creator summit. Again, you can read more on the blog. But um, the 
2024 rules section was done by Jeremy Crawford and Chris Perkins. They said they want to have more in-person conversations. They want to be at Gen Con and other locations to both talk, kind of share their feelings about rules and hear feedback, but also things like sessions with content creators at conventions where they would have an open conversation around those who create their own content and how they integrate them with the 2024 rules. That's, yeah, it's interesting. That's, I don't, you know, entirely know what that would feel like, but I like the fact that these are the kinds of questions they're asking and are now realizing that they need to connect with the audience that way. Um, they then reviewed various design goals and, and there was a lot here, but the really big things were the first and kind of biggest, this edition, one D&D, no, they're no longer going to use that, that name. And that name was always said to be a placeholder, but now 1D&D is gone, and they're just going to call it 5E. And this represents clearly a change, right? So when Kyle Brink was interviewed, he said, well, it's 5.5. And today the team was saying, you know, it's not 5.5, it's 5E. And the, the idea here is that 2024 and 2014 are fully compatible in that you can bring any monster or a class or a subclass, you know, one character, another character, an adventure, a new adventure, and it works fine. That's their concept, right? Now, there are always going to be rough spots, right? I mean, I know the reality of that. You know the reality of it. But I like that they have thought this through, right? I, it seemed to me back just even a month ago, I wasn't sure that they'd fully thought this through or had they thought it through and they were just going to steamroll ahead with saying things a certain way. And indicative of that was Jeremy saying that when he was doing work as a, I think, a freelancer, he had to convert a bunch of monsters from third edition to 3.5. And he said, that was another edition. I had to do all this work because the monsters needed to be changed to work. And he says, 2024 5e will not require that. Uh, any numbers, such as the CR of a monster, the level of a spell, those things are not going to change so that you can keep integrating and talking. The rules might change but you know you could cast bark skin because it's on your spell list you can still do that it might have a different effect and you could use either version right if you really wanted to because it should be ostensibly as powerful they did say that xanathars and tashas have elements that are being brought into the 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 2024 version you can see that already in some of the 1 dnd playtest items so those books will work but they're going to be converted and reprinted so that they kind of work in that new light so we know we're at least getting two books that are getting converted. Um, the player's handbook is 32 to 64 pages longer. Some of that is more art. The art for the book is all new. Wow. Um, they shared new weapon mastery rules. These were kind of cool. They feel a little bit like second edition uh, where you could have kind of cool things you do with a weapon. And not everybody can do this. So certain classes have a mastery capability. And you can gain a mastery from a weapon. So then the weapon you choose in the kind of baseline table that is in the player's handbook, that weapon has a listed mastery, like slow, right? Which slows your, your damage. Or nick, which does damage on a miss. Uh, topple, push, cleave, many others. And if a class can have a weapon mastery and you choose that particular weapon, you can choose to have that weapon mastery. And now your weapon does whatever it is. Um, so that keeps you kind of having something exciting that you can do with weapon. And then fighters can not only learn many weapon masteries, but also can do things like take the weapon mastery from one weapon they know and apply it to another, or maybe even have more than one. I forget. There were a lot of things, but it was exciting. It sounded really exciting to be a fighter. I thought that was kind of really neat. Um, 
they're also reworking the sorcery and warlock so the both the fiction and sort of mechanic of it works better when you are starting at level one and uh you have your baseline of what it means to be those classes and then you're unlocking your subclass when you hit that third level again it's not that i think this is perfect but i'm really glad that they are thinking through these things right that's what you have to do if you move that subclass from uh i'd say even the cleric as well but especially the sorcerer and warlock where you have a pact uh you have you know an origin that has to somehow make a, a proper story so we'll see that we had very little time to look at the monster manual and dungeon master's guide poor chris perkins kind of sat there for <laughs> the entire time and got to say a few words but the monster manual is going to have the CR 10 and higher monsters hit way harder and then revised encounter building rules. Um, and then uh, there will be new monsters. It'll be the largest monster manual that D&D has ever seen. Almost all new art. There are more generic NPCs. So if you think of those cool NPCs at the back of the book, they said, you know, everybody's using those all the time. We're going to now have things that span more CRs and even groups such as cultists that give you a bunch of different cultists at different CRs. Then also new Apex monsters that show you what a certain type is like when it's at the very high CR level. So an elemental, you know, what's it mean when it's an Apex elemental? Yeah, that was a lot. Then the DMG will have samples to show a style of adventure writing for home games. Same with campaigns. They'll give us example campaigns to inspire us. I immediately thought of Mike Shea's work and thought, oh yeah, I really like how he does that. So I hope they do a good job of it. Um, they want to address three issues of the DMG. A lot of people don't know what's in today's DMG, can't find things in it, and don't use it. <laughs> so they want to make it a better reference guide, more useful, and handle common issues. Things like there's a player that left your campaign, or you run out of ideas. You know, how do you look at those kinds of things? Um, there were also a lot of signed conversations that I said, a lot of really good items, and I'll try to capture those in my blog, but there's only so much I think you want to hear me say about it in this format. Um, but if you have questions, you know, hit us up and, and we will do it as part of our toot bag, tweet bag, et cetera. Um, I'm very thankful to Wizards for uh, inviting me. I know they could have invited a lot of people in my stead. I tried to make the most of my time for both them and the community. It was not a perfect event, but it was a really good event. It was very clear that the team had worked really, really hard on this. Uh, they dedicated an extraordinary amount of resources to make it useful. And I think this was a really good first step for for D and D reaching out to that community and trying to create a conversation. It won't be the conversation that everybody wants or wanted, but uh, it's a really good step in the right direction. So I was appreciative of it. Um, let's see. I think there's a new guest coming in. Oh, look, it's it's a different Sean Merwin. Hey, Sean. I uh, hope your vacation is going great. Uh, that that is a cool tool. Uh, some news from our eagle-eyed friend Dave at D-A-R-J-R, who says that the Player's Handbook has cracked the top 100 in all Amazon books again. Player's Handbook is at number 88, or at least it was when he was uh, sharing a toot about it. And likely this comes from the movie, causing a surge in sales. That's really impressive. Um, Dave, who reported the story, said he ran the Learn to Play scenario this last weekend, which we talked about. Um, it continues on this next weekend, I believe. Uh, yes. And um, he said a lot of his local store so a lot, sold a lot of copies of player handbooks at the event, event. So that may also be helping to some extent, but clearly this movie is doing a good job. Um, the player's handbook has been in the top 300 for many years, surging at times, and this is the latest surge. 
Speaking of the movie, there are several free movie-related items on D&D Beyond that you can get if you like that. Uh, and we have a link in the show notes, or you can just go to D&D Beyond, and it should be one of the recent blog stories. And Netflix is saying they're going to create a new Stranger Things animated series. Uh, Deadline reports that an untitled animated series has been greenlit at Netflix. I couldn't kind of believe this, but it's been seven years since 2016 when the series started. Uh, and it has likely been boosting D&D's popularity ever since. So the idea that an animated series is coming out is good news for D&D, good news for RPGs. The Duffer Brothers will be executive producers. Eric Robles is producing the animated series. There's also been talk of a stage play and a live action spinoff. So, you know, all of that will probably benefit uh, gaming in general. And two last pieces of news. Kobold Press has named their game and set a date. They've been working on Project Black Flag. And um, Project Black Flag is... um, the the code name that they chose and this project was announced when the OGL fiasco was really starting off um, as a a truly open source uh, RPG version of D&D is sort of how they began communicating it. And they've been refining that message, especially now that the OGL situation has been resolved with the SRD being in the Creative Commons. Uh, we don't have the same worries we once did and the OGL is, is there as well. Um, But this new game is now called Tales of the Valiant, and they're going to launch a Kickstarter in May and will ship it in 2024. The game will have two books, a player's guide and the monster vault. A third book, they said, is possible. It's interesting that basically they're putting in all of the how to run it uh, rules into the player's guide. The player's guide, they say, includes 13 base classes, classes, lineages and heritages from classic fantasy role playing and the rules you need to play or GM all between two covers. And linked to that is Paizo releasing their Orc draft license. Uh, the Orc or Open RPG Creative License wasn't originally Paizo. It was conceived of by many individuals at the beginning, but Paizo quickly started providing resources and, and sort of directing the effort. Um, and they now are the, the main thrust that seems to be uh, powering this. Um, so the, uh, the, the, what Orc intends to do is provide an alternate license that you can use for any RPG. Um, the license information is out there. This is a draft, so you can take a look at it and see what you think. But uh, it, because the, the OGL has not ended and the D&D SRD is in Creative Commons with more to be added, it, it's unclear exactly what the Orc offers. It probably really differs by company or individual. And we'll have to see how, how well it succeeds at what it's aiming to do. Um, one thing it does is it registers, the, the license is registered with the Library of Congress instead of being owned by any one company. So, so uh, not only is it sort of existing in perpetuity, but, but independent of any organization. Um, and in principle, it's a license that, that you could use for non-D&D games. Um, and it could be something that Paizo, you know, of course, would use for their D&D derivative game to protect themselves from lawsuits of exactly how much of the material comes from D&D elements that are in the SRD or not in the SRD. Um, but I think that's an interesting question as to whether, whether it does shield you somewhat and what happens if you take someone's content that wasn't properly put into Orc. Yeah, there's some questions there I'm, I'm curious about. 
Um, one very interesting change that I saw is, is from my understanding, uh, the license does not have a product, but does have a product identity section. So you can say, my, these things are mine, these names, these words, this part of it. But it doesn't include mechanics. So all mechanics by design are open. And that kind of feeds into this concept of like, well, you can't copyright mechanics. And while we all might say that a fair amount in the hobby, it's not really clear that that's true. That, that's something that was true legally quite some time ago. And it really would have to go to court to find out whether that's true or not. And so here the ORC license is really cementing that for this license, the mechanics cannot be copyrighted, owned, etc. But I don't know how often that's true that, you know, a designer or even a company want all of their mechanics to be um, absolutely used by other folks. You know, your initiative system, your combat system, your any of it. Uh, there are obviously a lot of people who are happy with that and have put all their mechanics in Creative Commons. Um, but it, but is having that sort of hard rule desirable? I don't know. So we'll have to see. Uh, let us know what you think. And now for our main topic, the gumshoe system. We're going to talk about Time Watch, Swords of the Serpentine, Knights Black Agents, and much more. And we are doing this with Kevin Culp, who has joined us. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank Welcome. you so much for having me. <laughs> so, Kevin, you are an all-around amazing human being. Thank you. Uh, always enjoy seeing the things you post online. Uh, it's, it's healthy, fun stuff. Well, healthy-ish, because you do sometimes do a lot of smoked meats. Um, the uh, and you know I'm we just saw a, a crappy shark movie 142 last night right so that's also a very important part of my life. This is an important part of your life. Uh, but back on the health track, you're often talking about uh, safety with people in industrial locations and sleep deprivation, which is fantastic. Yeah, my um so my main job is doing fatigue and alertness consulting for companies that run night shifts 24 hours a day. Um, and game design is, I did game design full-time for a while, and I think I'm happier doing it part-time. Uh... <laughs> so anyways, yeah, so those are sort of the two parts professionally of my life. Awesome. Yeah, and, and we're here for the game design side, uh, which you have worked a ton with Gumshoe. It's, it's kind of amazing to look at your name and where it appears kind of on every product. Uh, but you have written scenarios and supporting products for a variety of gumshoe games like Knights Back Agents. I think the first time I played was like a scenario you'd written. Uh, and then you wrote, you're the lead designer for Time Watch. Oh, and, and, and I should say I have, you know, Time Watch right here. Uh, right. And then you, you've worked on Knights Black Agents. And over one of my shoulders is your latest Swords of the Serpentine, which you co-wrote. And, and so... Uh, and, and then you've done a lot of other stuff. Owl Hoot Trail, uh, Journaling Game, Wait for Me. You worked on the Hillfolk RPG on 13th Age, D&D. &D. Am I leaving anything out? I, I think the only, so I actually got started back in 2001, right after 3rd Edition came out, where I wrote one of the first psionics-based adventures that came out, uh, Of Zound Mine for Fiery Dragon. Most notable, it was it got nominated for an Emmy, which was nice. Most notable for the fact that... Um, there were two really terrifying draft horses who turned out to be psionic monstrosities. Um, and a lot of player characters got their faces bitten off by one of them. Uh, so anyway, so uh, that's sort of where I got started. And then it rolled downhill from there. I'm so sorry to hear that those draft <laughs> horses uh, weren't horses. Uh, but as a DM, I love those things. Um, 
And so, yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna go through an overview of Gumshoe because it is sort of we've covered Fate in a previous episode and and other games where there's sort of the the generic version of it, and then there are applications of it. And and so Gumshoe, which is now available, uh, it has an SRD that's available out on the Creative Commons and OEGL. I think it's both. Um, you can get those rules and look through them. Um, they're pretty brief. And then you have these games that hang off of it, like Time Watch or Swords of the Serpentine. So Gumshoe was created in 2007 by Robin Laws, which is right there. Uh, you know, it's amazing. And the whole point of it, as I understand it, and Kevin, feel free to correct my understanding of the history and, and, and any of these aspects. But the concept was, I want to be able to have investigative role-playing games and adventures where you are driving the action, you're uncovering clues, you're empowered to do things. And it's less about the did you roll to find it? It's in fact, it's not at all about that. It's about what are you going to do with the information you have? And how does that create drama? Is that kind of I think, I think one of the things that first drove this were games where you would I mean, I've been in Call of Cthulhu games before where we need to find the the old guy's diary and everybody rolls a spot hidden and everybody mm -hmm. fails and we need that diary <laughs> to go further um i was once in a time master game back in the 90s where the main hook of the game was we had to realize that there were little tiny dinosaurs eating table scraps down by our feet and every single person failed their role to notice that this was weird for 45 minutes the gm kept finding excuses to get us to roll right so the concept of gumshoe is designed to uh, sidestep that. But one of the things I find really interesting about it, and I know we'll talk more about this, is that it is a system that usually embraces competence. Um, yeah. Like if you think about the TV show Leverage, which is about a, 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 people who are very good at their job, doing their job really well, I think that a lot of gumshoe games capture that level of, uh, of being good at what you do. And so that's yeah. something I do like about the system. Yeah, and it does it, it in a variety of fun places that we'll for sure get um, get into because it's it's such a different concept than than D and D, which is what you know we're often talking about on the show, and we love comparing other systems to D and D and learning from it. And and an, an interesting thing about D and D is you know you sort of start with the idea that you're low level, and then you eventually reach these incredible heights, but yet you're always facing tougher foes. And even if you follow the school of thought that some people do, where like, you know, a, a DC of, say, a block should never change in D&D, &D, if, if that's kind of how you feel about it, even then there are things that you can fail at. And, and often you can fail at picking a lock, even to the very high levels. And, and Gumshoe turns that around and says, no, from the very beginning on your first game that you're playing, you have this expertise. And so if your deal is lock picking, you probably are going to be able to succeed at this and, and in fact, cause yourself to succeed. That's a really cool concept. So I, I'm actually going to, do, going to um, drill down on that for just a second, which is that I don't know, like, lock, like you're not necessarily going to be able to pick that lock in a gumshoe game unless there's an important clue behind it. Yeah, right? okay. Where the Fair. idea is if there's something which gives it's, – it's more fun to put the pieces together than it is to fail your role and not get the pieces. Mm -hmm. Um uh, and in fact, we're seeing this in some cases applied to D and D. You know, I'm I just starting a new D and D campaign with a friend, um, and one of the things that they're doing is if there is a adventure linked clue, 
we don't have to roll our um, our skills in order to find it, right? If I need to make my nature test in order to figure out like which direction I should go, I just get given that information. I'll still make nature tests for, uh, or skill tests for other stuff. Yeah. But um, and dumpster works that way too, right? right. You're making a lock picking roll if you're trying to do something uh, for yourself, and if it's something that's really important for the adventure, um, you're probably going to succeed at that. Right. That's a great point. And and what's neat about it is that it permeates a lot farther than you think. Like a lot when I, I think when I first started working with Gumshoe and playing it, I was like, oh, you know, sure, I'm not going to miss the clue. And so it's it's kind of the you know, if the if like you get an example, right? These di tiny dinosaurs you need to spot. Well, you will spot them. But what it then also does is it, it very carefully says to the the game master who's crafting the experience that hey, because they're going to find this the fun has to be there as to what you do with this information. And that's a real key to gumshoe games as well. And something that often isn't present in D and D because the fun is sort of in the role, right? I, I find that really fascinating. And when I've played a lot of times when I play these, these games and, and systems that are sort of more like gumshoe than they are D and D, I find that um, like spycraft was this way too. you, you are it's really about your choices around these elements and and it's really fun to engage with the whole table and kind of all right how do we want to approach this what do we make of this and that's kind of neat yeah you know i uh i remember spycraft so clearly because boy i loved that game when it came out and then i i remember the moment where um i was frustrated because i was trying to chase somebody down a pier and my movement for the round ended and they were 10 feet ahead of me. And on their turn, they jumped in a speedboat and raced away, right? Like I stopped dead. Yeah. Um, and at that time, I just wanted something a little more cinematic that would let me tackle the guy. And um, and that's one of the things that this system gave to me, um, mm -hmm. kind of a more uh, less simulationist, more emulationist, kind of more cinematic approach. Right. Um, the uh it's fun for me it took me when i first started playing gumshoe i first started with a game called the esoterrorists mm -hmm. which was the first game that came out for it and i hated it i couldn't figure it out like i try i ran a game i thought i am very bad at this um and then i didn't touch it for like four years That's uh, great. and then wow. a, a science fiction game called ashen stars came out for gumshoe written by robin d Lost. and i tried that and i'm like Oh my goodness, it's so good. And it really worked well. Uh, Ken Height wrote the um, Super Spies versus Vampires game, Next Black Agents. Mm -hmm. uh, I played that and I really fell in love with it. And that was the game that made me want to run and write gumshoe games myself. And so Time Watch and then Swords of the Serpentine, they all sort of rolled out of that, um, that experience of running those kinds of games. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so it's worth mentioning there are a whole bunch of gumshoe games. You can go to the Pelgrim Press site and see them. So this Trail of Cthulhu, uh, which Sean Merwin has talked about, my co-host on this show has said that his favorite version of Cthulhu is Trail of Cthulhu. He's like, that's an awesome engine with which to run a Call of Cthulhu game because you are uh, or Cthulhu game because you are not just getting the horror genre, but these mechanics that really support the style of play you often want in a Cthulhu experience. Um, we have Ashen Stars, as you mentioned, sci-fi, Time Watch, Time Travel, Night's Black Agents, which give you modern, modern espionage and vampires. And, and what I love about it is you can literally use it just for modern espionage if you want. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's got all this awesome thing. And my favorite thing to do with it is start with modern espionage and then introduce the supernatural. And it becomes like your favorite TV show, but in a campaign. 
I, when I first re- heard about it, I thought, well, that's a really stupid concept that I'll never use. I don't need vampires, but oh, I want a super spy game. And then I read it. I'm like, oh my God, it's brilliant. Yeah, this is what I want. So yeah. I'm I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and I and I and uh, I could talk about all, you and I could probably go into any of these little aspects forever. But one of the things that's really nice about a lot of these campaigns is that they are they themselves are broad. So like Knights Black Agents allows you to run many different types of espionage campaigns. So it can be this kind of hard, grueling what's going on in your organization. You're even worried about your own place within your organization, your CIA type group. Um, you can run it as sort of high uh, cinematic. So, and there are all these different elements that you can, I forget the names of all of them, but when, when you're operating it, you're just reading the rules and it'll say like, well, if you're running this type of game, here's what you do and uh, to, to, to do that. Here's how the rule changes. And I love that. It's something I like, you know, when we wrote Time Watch, which is a time travel investigation, I think we ended up like with like a dozen different campaign settings. So you can run a quantum leap game. You can run a slider style game where there's just parallel realities and it's not actual time travel. There's Still a time inside. crimes version. There's a time crimes version where you are thieves moving through time, stealing, stealing amazing stuff. There's a horror setting. So there's a lot of different sort of ways to approach that. Yeah. Yeah, and then I often will catch uh, one shots of Time Watch at, at any convention I go to, because they tend to be such a different uh, concept and 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 create ideas. Because if anyone looks at time travel, it can just borrow from so many concepts and then create their own story of how this one shot should play out and what it's going to reveal to you. And and oh man, we had fun. Like uh, th- there's a scenario out there. I don't know if you wrote this. I feel like someone else wrote this. That was. Um, where two of the the characters are on their first date. I know that wasn't me, but I wish it was. That's great. It, it's amazing, and I played one of the people on the on the date, and and you have all this backstory, and and that's like just a microcosm of what's happening at the character level, and then these enormous things are happening at the world time stream level that you end up stumbling into, not being a time traveler until you suddenly are, and that I mean, just it's incredible what you can do story wise with it. So. Um, all right, let's let's talk about gumshoe in general for folks that don't understand it, sort of how it, it works. And the, there's a philosophy that you can find in the SRD uh, or Creative Commons versions of the game that talks about sort of what what the what what the game is trying to do for the, the game master. Um, so you're usually revolving your your story revolves and the action and the play revolves around a crime, a conspiracy, or some other. Th- threat um, or mystery that's taking place. And that, as you have noted here in the show notes, it varies pretty widely from game to game, right? I think it's important to note that it's not necessarily a crime, right? That it's also a mystery. Because one of the Mm -hmm. things, Swords of the Serpentine, which is the new game, is Swords and Sorcery set in a fantasy city, like Lankmar, like Ankh-Morpork, sort of that kind of feel. And one of the things that people, when I said that I was, we were writing it, they're like, that's like... Why would I want to play that? Like, is it noir detective? Is it a fantasy? Um, but the truth is, pretty much any fantasy story that you read is an investigation. Like, if you go back to White Plume Mountain for D and D, and you're going in to find out why Caractus stole those three weapons, right? That's 
technically yeah. an investigation. And so you want systems and you want rule sets that support a lot. You know, if you have some kind of unanswered question, you want to, you want that to be supported. Yeah, and and it and it's classic. I mean, to talk about the D and D angle, right? You have the whole um, uh, why are the giants attacking, right? Uh, and why are the hill giants attacking? And then why are the fire giants and the and then it's why are the drow doing this? <laughs> it just goes all the way back, the wheels within wheels, layers within layers. And and so when when you're looking at Gumshoe, it gives you this advice to establish antagonists, and you you have what's called the investigation trigger. And that is the thing where the antagonists are going to uh, clash with the characters in some way to bring the characters into action, usually with an exciting or intriguing start. And that's sort of where, where the action will set off. But you then also have your what they call sinister conspiracy. The GM is going to create the organization that is uh, doing the bad things, establish their goals and the steps to their plans. And the investigation trigger plays a, an important part in these plans. And that's why when you come in, you realize, whoa, something important is happening. I must figure out what's going on. And the characters will be propelled to follow clues, make choices to understand the antagonist schemes, and unravel that mystery. That's so um, Yeah, I think that's, that's a great description. And there's a, like that sort of manifests itself in different ways. One of the Time Watch adventures um, I wrote was like the the initial trigger is um, the Bay of Pigs um, results in nuclear war and millions of people die, and it's because President Nixon messed up negotiations with Khrushchev. You're like Nixon should it be Kennedy, but Kennedy's a barber in South Boston, right? So you trace that back. Um, yeah. There's a Swords of the Serpentine uh, adventure that I wrote recently where the bad guy was a sorceress who was stealing the souls out of street children and, and painting them into paintings and then channeling the spirits of dead assassins into those soulless children so that she could have a sort of a team of undetectable assassins. Oh, wow. Um, and that initial hook was... Um, uh, was the people getting killed by children and the children just being soulless hulks afterwards. And then they sort of traced that back through the art. So yeah, there's a lot of different ways that initial hook and then the conspiracy manifests itself. If I recall correctly, there's a Time Watch adventure that I ran at a convention that I, I, I forget how it exactly starts. It has a lot of fantastic twists <laughs> and turns. But I think it's something like Comic Sans becomes like the only font in the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's... um. <laughs> <laughs> the bad guys are is a hyper intelligent AI who's trying to um, make learning easier so that it can invent itself uh, before time travel is invented, thus um, thus locking the time agents out of the thing. Yes, so they go back in time and make Gothic black letter used in Bibles and uh, much more easy to read and learn. Yeah. Hilarious. Uh, and, I, and so I love those kinds of elements because when I've run that scenario, for example, and I've run it a couple of times at conventions, you know, these kinds of hooks, just everybody wants to solve it. And this is something you can apply to your D&D games to really think about that mystery and the protagonist and the antagonist and how that's going to intersect. And so it's a really nice system. And so what, what it proposes to you to do is, OK, you're thinking about who is behind the action, who are, who are the antagonists, what are they doing um, and what, what their motivations are. 
And if you're playing a game like Knights Black Agents, it can do, it can go into some great detail about the conspiracy network you set up, right? Sort of a, what they call a compared a con pyramid, the conspiracy pyramid. Yep. And 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 so you you're gonna start at the bottom and and move some way to the top, though you can have a lot of different direction as to where, how you progress and and reach the top. But ultimately, you're gonna get to that to that ending of their of something that will stop their plans. It doesn't have to be the the moment of the ritual. That's kind of obvious to D and D. You know, the priest will conduct the ritual at, at a certain day. It can be that, but it can also be a number of things that the players could do to 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 realize what the plans are. They've unraveled the clues and they stop it. And so, you're usually the, the the advice here is to to work backwards from what the antagonists are doing to create a trail of clues that are going to lead from the investigation trigger at the start to the heart of the plot and to the antagonists, such that they have a chance to destroy it. And I think that's a neat way of, of approaching uh, campaign and adventure design. I agree. I, uh, I, but I agree with the, <laughs> with the knowledge that I don't always use that. Ken sure. Hite describes the sea of clues as well, mm-hmm. instead of a trail of clues, where mm-hmm. there's all this sort of information out there and which direction you navigate decides on what part of that you're picking up. And I think that has some really interesting overlap with D&D. And, and there, um, are you kind of saying, like, we can just improvise where we go and not worry about the structure? I think it is more like, um, hey, I know what the revelation is mm-hmm. that I want my player characters to take out of this scene, right? Mm-hmm. They, um, and so I don't, a trail of clues would say, hey, I know exactly which clues lead to this revelation. A sea of clues is more like, I know what the revelation is. As the players are are asking about and learning and, and trying different things, um, I can give them that information that is appropriate to the thing that they're trying. So, okay. for instance, in D&D, if you're using a divination spell, uh, if I'm using a divination spell and you're GMing, you might give me the information which leads me to a new place. doesn't necessarily reveal the conspiracy, but it gives me someone right. to talk to. It gives me a place to go to, right, that pushes that adventure forward. Yeah. And um, had you, and I really not, like that approach. And, and I think what's fun is that if you don't use the divination spell, you might end up somewhere else, right? Which is exactly that's right. a, but, a you fun know what? Thing. But but if I'm using my uh, my nature ability or investigate, um, you know, or perception or what have you, I'm going to find things which kind of which point me towards other clues or which point me in a direction. Yeah. Um, and it means that you know I always describe investigative adventures and you know good adventure design as a brontosaurus where it's thin at one end much much bigger in the middle and then thin again at the far end right yeah. you you start the adventure with like a really specific hook there's a lot of different ways which it can go in the middle of the adventure and then those um those scenes channel you back towards a really good climax uh, i think gumshoe is well suited for that sort of game design i i love that image of the brontosaurus i think yeah. now everybody has to adopt that that's great yeah um the, the the advice in core gumshoe also talks about core clues right those are those key clues we were talking about that you are you must know in order to resolve scenes and and move right. forward and so those are the ones that if if a scene has a core clue you're going to find it right and it's it's about what you do with it and an example that i've often seen used is is that if you have the medicine or forensic skill and someone was murdered in a scene, and the key is, you know, what they were murdered with, you will always succeed at that check, right? You will 
you will right. because you're going to find that clue. You're going to know it. Um, and as we'll talk about in a bit, you may yeah. be able to even boost that to learn even more. Well, the, the sort of early description I heard, which really stuck with me, is if you're watching a uh, an action movie or a TV show or whatever, and they find a corpse, like Scully doesn't look at a corpse and be like, well, missed my check. Don't know yeah. what happens next, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> one of the things that I really like, though, is that some of the gumshoe games give you a fair amount of narrative control to describe how it is you find that information out. One of the early Swords of the Serpentine playtests had a sorcerer whose um, power came from a spider demon. And so when he was doing his medical check on a corpse that he found, he described conjuring hundreds of spiders, sending them into the body to check out the body from inside. Right? He could have just said, I'm using my leechcraft ability and tell me how they die. Right. Um, but you get that really flavorful ability, and you know you're going to get the information. So that flavor doesn't affect whether you're, you know, raise or lower your check in that process. That's a really great point yeah. because that's one of the disappointing things in D and D is you will say like, okay, I'm going to sweet talk this guard to get past them, and you say these perfect words. You've got this great plan, and then you roll that d20 and you get a, you know, something like a three to a one or something. And the DM, you know, is trying to think of like how not to <laughs> cause it to be a fail. And we all know that it was a failure, but why? And now everybody, you know, a, a good DM can improvise the why, I guess, or a setback or something like that. But what's nice about things like charm and, and, and those kinds of uh, abilities in this system is that they are part of that auto success when they're used in this kind of way, which is really cool. I, you know, the other thing that's interesting is that, and we'll talk more about the mechanics, but games like uh, Swords has um, a sway ability that you use to attack people's morale. So you're not just attacking their health or hit points, you're attacking the morale. And the best combats leave with a bad guy unhurt, but sobbing uncontrollably on their knees, regretting their life choices, right? <laughs> um, and so the interesting thing about that really attracted me originally to Gumshoe is that I have control over how many points I spend to make that role successful or not. And so assuming that I've, um, uh, that uh, I really want something to work, right? If I want to spend enough points to make sure that's going to work this time, I can make that impassioned speech and know that it's going to be successful in some way. Um, cool. And if I don't care, I want to just leave it to luck. I can just roll the die. And I, I like Gumshoe often has these elements that are sort of super simple on the surface, but then you can use them in really neat ways. And, and um, like there are the hazards, which are rules that cover anything from an alien fungal infection to electric shock to fire. And you get all these examples and various games have sort of versions of these that you can use. A lot of, lot of flexibility there. Or the, the opponents, so monsters, threats like that, a lot of them will have like a health one or two. So you're dealing D6 damage. You will almost always be killing these things. So they function as minions. And the simplicity of the system that we're going to talk about means that they are, it's often very easy to DM to just know what you're doing. You're rolling a D6 to attack. You're rolling D6 on uh, damage and you're modifying it based on their skill pool or their, um, uh, their weapon damage modifier. It's all very simple. And then you, sometimes they have an attack pattern, which is their strategy of what they tend to do. So they might spend pool points early or they may hold on to them. And then you have these special monsters, right? You can have like cool undead, like vampires and Night's Black agents that are, like you pointed out here, a lot like a D&D &D monster, right? 
uh, you know, I think usually on how narratively important the bad guys are is how tough they are. Mm -hmm. And you know what I always go back to? The scene um, in the tea house in Kill Bill. Uh -huh. Where the the bride comes in and they're you know the crazy eighty those guys don't have names right they have one health point and if she, they can hurt her if they hit her but she's just gonna slash through them and then okay. she runs into Gogo Yabari who has a name so you know she's narratively important so she's really powerful um, and she and, has um, key moves right exactly right right um, and then finally the final fight with Oren right mm -hmm. um, and so. A lot of gumshoe games do that, where how narratively important your bad guy is and how easy they are to defeat depends on whether they have a name or not. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. The with, for instance, in Knights Black Agents with the vampires, vampires have a lot of powers you won't necessarily expect, and then they have a pool of points which they use to to fuel those powers. Um, so they 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 might move incredibly quickly, or they might be able to make you horribly weak as they plunge their fangs into you, or they might try mind control, right? And not all vampires are the same. There might be alien vampires. Uh, there might be man-made vampires that come out of Russian biolabs. Mm -hmm. There might be traditional vampires. Um, yeah. And uh, you're dealing with different things, and those mechanics support all of them. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I it, And it just amazes me that it is you know, ostensibly so light, but then can have this depth to it when you need it. But it all rests upon the same framework. So it isn't, uh, you know, you don't have to learn new subsystems or anything wild like that. It's, it's all pretty, pretty reasonable and, and easy to work with. I've, I've appreciated that a lot. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about character creation. And you start with a concept and games usually provide you uh, with, a, with a concept that fits the world. So you can sort of envision what your character is like. Uh, Swords of the Serpentine has some great ones. And then you spend build points to acquire and progress abilities of two types. And this, to a D&D player, feels like you're choosing skills, but this, these attributes or skills are everything you do. They're your attacks and they're your knowledge and all of it. So, so you really are building your character when you spend these points, right? And one of the things which I always tell people is, it's easy to get analysis paralysis if you're not careful. So going into it with a strong thought about, hey, what kind of a hero, what kind of a character do I want, uh, I think pays off. Yeah. Um, there's basically two different types of abilities. As you said, there's investigative abilities and general abilities. Investigative abilities are how you find stuff out. So um, you and those always work. You never need to spend a point. You never need to roll a die. If James Bond is at a party that's being thrown by the evil bad guy and he flirts with using flirting he flirts with the evil bad guy's girlfriend she's going to give him information that's going to help him later in the movie yeah it never but fails could, right <laughs> yeah but you can also spend those mm -hmm. points so uh, and spending those points doesn't make him better at being charming but it's a basically a little bit of spotlight time where he gets to do something cool linked to that ability so if he, for instance, is flirting with her and spends one point of flirting, um, they'll probably go to bed with him and give him information. He spends two points of flirting. She'll fall in love with him, betray her boss at some point and get killed. And if he spends three points of flirting, she falls in love with him, betrays her boss at the best possible time and lives to the end of the movie. <laughs> and I think that's actually a really important point yeah. because spending those points gives the player a little bit of narrative control over the world a little bit of spotlight time 
in Time Watch, yeah. um, there's an architecture ability. And if you're trapped in a burning building, you can't find your way out, and you're a time traveler, you say, screw this. Um, I'm going to spend a point of architecture. Next week, I'm going to go back in time, find the blueprints, and put a fire exit in the next room. You spend <laughs> your point of architecture, and as long as you haven't been in the next yeah. room yet, you know, you crawl in, and there's a, there's a uh, fire escape there. Yeah. Um, so I, I like that uh, the flexibility there. And, and just to kind of make sure folks kind of grasp what this is, you know, when you're doing your character build, you might say, well, you know, I'm going to put a point in intimidation. Um, oh. That means you now have that and that you can succeed with it always. But you might say, I'm going to, you know, this is such a character concept of mine. I'm going to put two points in it. And that's where you can do those higher spends like you're talking about, especially as you get into higher what we would call levels in the D&D sense. But once your character progresses. Um, and then you can do these really creative things with them that are exactly the kinds of things that movies and novels do that like you D and D you always want to do those things. You're like, you know, like I'm, I've got training in streetwise, but nothing in D and D ever allows me to really get like all of the street urchins to join me and do things for me. But in um, this game, you can't. That's a really interesting point. Two kind of related topics. Mm -hmm. uh, one is that uh, we added politics into the latest game, Swords of the Serpentine. So, for instance, if you have um, an allegiance with the Thieves Guild, you could spend that point to have the entire Thieves Guild, or you know, or multiple points, to have the Thieves Guild turn out to help you in something, um, nice. or to gain a favor from them, which yeah. I find really satisfying, right? It's really the, satisfying. Um, and, and it's good for the GM because it says, it's this giant, you know, blinking sign that says, the player really cares about this and wants you to work off of this. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. You know, it's a little bit strange to me, you know, coming from D&D &D, that there's not separate stats for strength and intelligence and mm -hmm. wisdom and that kind of stuff. The game is defined by what your capabilities are, and then you can describe yourself however you want to. Um, you could be, for instance, you mentioned that point of intimidation beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. You might be, if you don't have a rank in intimidating, you might not be intimidating at all, or you might be so friggin' scary that people clam up when, the, when they're around you. You That's know that point. you're not going to get a clue by intimidating somebody, but what that means really depends on what you tell me it means. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of an interesting change yeah. from uh, what we've seen in prior games. That's a great point. And so if you spend a point, you will generally get it at the end of the adventure uh, or scenario. Um, and... Um, but even if you spend your points, if I have one in intimidation and I spend it to do a cool thing beyond just succeeding, um, I am still going to be trained in intimidation for the rest of the time. So, so if, if something else come up, I'd still succeed. I just don't have points to spend to do those extra special things. And general abilities are somewhat similar in terms of how you are allocating points to say, you know, I have a six in shooting. Uh, I have a two in athletics, those kinds of things. And these skills like shooting, hand-to-hand, -hand, athletics, gambling, burglary, piloting, surveillance, that type of thing, are those sort of typical things we think of in an RPG where failure is possible, the outcome is not assured, and we're going to roll to succeed. And a test is going to be roll a d6. Your general target number is four, uh, though it can vary in special cases, but it's almost always four, and you're generally going to know the target number. And then the cool thing is how you get to resolve that. And Kevin, do you want to share how that works? Sure. So the uh, I often think about general tests where you're rolling a D6 and maybe spending some points beforehand as the D6 is your luck. 
Um, if you watch an episode of Archer when spies are hiding behind a wall and just shooting blindly at each other, they're not spending any shooting points. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the amount of skill you put into it is the number of points. So if I put three points, they say shooting points, and then I roll the die, I'm guaranteed to hit at least four. I need four. That's usually my target number. I'm going to hit the guy. Um, and different games have different benefits for having lots of ranks in those abilities. The usual scale there um, is that if you have eight ranks or more, you're an expert. And so you get to do extra cool stuff. Give you an example. Um, in the fantasy game, right, in Swords of the Serpentine, if you have eight ranks in stealth, the talent that you get is called Where'd She Go? And when you make a stealth test, you disappear. We stop caring about where you are. As long as you can physically reach a spot, when you want to reappear in the action, you're where you want to be, and no one saw you get there. That's cool. Uh, evil priest sacrificing someone, you rise up behind them. How'd you get there? We don't know. We don't care, right? Because you're that good. Um, and uh, and in different games, you get different benefits, right? You can shoot multiple times. You do more damage. You heal more effectively. Uh, you dodge stuff, whatever. And I love those because they... Um... They're those pieces that really, if you think of like a Mission Impossible where everybody has their role, right? Like, yeah, they all take some points in shooting, but some people on the team really hit that eight on computers. Some people really hit the eight on piloting. Some hit the eight on shooting, right? <laughs> Infiltration, those kinds of things. And that makes it, it lets you distinguish yourself and, and feel special because you chose to really go deep in that area. Right, exactly right. And I like that. I think that it's important to have characters that feel different and that uh, have different niches. And it's amazing to me that all of this is accomplished with a D6. I think that was the first thing I noticed when I played uh, a demo at Gen Con one year. And they're like, you just need a D6. I'm like, D6? I don't think I'm going to like this game. <laughs> Disappointing. So, so I, like, yeah. it's worth touching on for that because one of the complaints that we've heard over, you know, 2007, right? So however many years it is, um, is that the thing, place where Gumshoe has traditionally sort of fallen down has been in how exciting combat is because they don't, you're not necessarily doing big damage. Knights Black Agents, the spy game, uh, solved that to a certain extent. But one of the things we did in Swords is we, because it's a fantasy game, right? You want to be really spectacular and cinematic in how much you hurt people. And just to be clear, the default yeah. is you roll a d6 oh, right. to yep. hit. And when you hit, you're going to roll a d6 for damage. And your weapon is going to tell you how to modify it. So if you're punching, you subtract two from what you rolled. A sword by default, you add Wah. one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, subtracting two, like that's not exciting. Um, so some of the things changes that have happened in different game editions is the number of points you spend on that attack become your minimum damage. Mm-hmm. If I'm spending four points and rolling the die, I'm not going to do any less damage than four. But one of the things that we do now is for um, for that kind of cinematic uh, experience is you can spend points from your investigative abilities to do more damage. Let's say you were playing a noble swordsman um, and you stab a guy, like you're a musketeer or something. Mm -hmm. And you say, hey, Kevin, can I spend two points of nobility in order to do two extra dice of damage? And I kind of look at you dubiously. And you say, when I was, we got to justify, right? When I was growing up, my parents hired a different swordsman to come into our mansion every year to teach me how to kill people. And I'd say, of course you can spend those two points of nobility. <laughs> and then you're rolling three dice instead of one dice, right? Yeah. Uh, instead of one die. Uh, so uh, so we uh, jazz it up a little bit. That's awesome. 
That, that reminds me of we, we didn't really cover preparedness, which is another fantastic part of the game, right? Preparedness says you have what you need when you need it. Gear lists become less important. In fact, mm -hmm. in some of the games, the gear lists include things like your grudges and um, yeah. um, and th and things that you wish you'd done. Uh, mm -hmm. But because when you need something, you have it. And one of the things that in several games, a high preparedness gives you is flashback. Mm -hmm. So you can, like a leverage game or an Ocean's Eleven, you can specify what happened previously. Uh, if you think about Fellowship of the Rings, remember the cave troll battle in the Mines of Moria? Sure. When Frodo gets stabbed by the cave <laughs> troll? Yeah, he died. Um, that killed him. But luckily, Sam has eight ranks of preparedness. Sam has flashback. He goes, huh, good thing Mr. Frodo put on his armor this morning, right? Rolls right. the die. Frodo put on his armor because he has flashback. And that was enough uh, damage mitigation to save his life. That's great. Um, I love that. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I really yeah. like that sort of approach. Uh, it's not simulationist, but it's, uh, it's in genre and it's pretty fun. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's because these games are really working so tightly into the genre and they're creating such a fun cinematic experience. I don't think I've ever had someone say like, oh, that doesn't fit. Like maybe reading about it, thinking about the game, they might say that, but in the thick of it, it actually makes a lot of sense because you realize, wait a minute, my character would have done something for this. Can I say that I have this item with, you know, I, wait, I'm a, you know, I'm an electronics computer specialist. I've got to have one of these things on me, right? Like, well, roll and exactly. see. Yes, you do. Um, in fact, in Time the Watch, the time travel game, you can use preparedness to have your future self give you stuff you need right now. <laughs> uh, you can build and tend it up, which is yeah. kind of cool. A uh, thing that's different about this game than D&D is that health is more constrained. So mm. pretty unusual to find people with more than, say, 10 health. When you get mm. to negative 10 or negative 12, depending on the game, right, you're dead or you're defeated. Um, so it's a, a, a tighter band which I would think probably makes the combat feel a little bit more swingy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's actually how I'd think of most uh, gumshoe system games that I've played, where it feels tight. E even, on the, even on the easy fights, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're careful. Uh, and then on the hard ones, you're, you're very careful because <laughs> once you go to zero, you're, you're hurt and your tests are going to get worse, but you're going to also go unconscious unless you make a roll. And you can buy success by spending points. Uh, but that is decreasing your health further. And yeah. and so it, now you're... It's true. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a death spiral. Not a strong death spiral, but mm -hmm. a little bit of a death spiral. And I think that comes out of the game's horror roots with mm -hmm. um, Esoterrorists and Nice Black, um, nice black Agents and Trail mm -hmm. of Cthulhu and what have you. But even um, if you think of something like Die Hard, right? Like it, it's sort oh, of sure. like that kind of, you know, like I'm just going to dig deep and keep going, even though really I should be on the ground unconscious, right? And, Absolutely. But things are There's harder because I'm bleeding and my shoes are off and all that sort of stuff. That's a fantastic example. Yeah, it's really good. Right. Um, there's a, usually another ability alongside health. Um, in some games, that's stability, where, for instance, you might, you know, you might be in Trail of Cthulhu, you might be horribly insane from Cthulian monstrosities, but you're not necessarily freaking out. And that's because you made your stability test. Um, in other game, in Time Watch, it measures your ability to stay anchored in time and it's chronal stability. And mm -hmm. some weapons de-anchor you in time and might uh, that might be very bad. 
um, in Swords of the Serpentine, it's morale. And so whether or not you have the will and the gumption to stay in the fight. But usually it's, you know, one of those things. That's excellent. Well, I know our time is drawing near. Um, we've done, a, I think, a pretty good job of covering the basics. Um, but uh, I want to mention a couple things. Uh, community content, so Time Watch and some of the other games like Esoterra, Sphere Itself, Ashen Stars, all have community content programs on Drive Through RPG. So you can download those files and get started creating the content for it, which is really cool. Um, and uh, you can, Kevin, where's the best place to find you for people who want to find you? Sure. So probably uh, Twitter, where I'm at Kevin Culp, K-U-L-P. On uh, Reddit, I'm at Serpentine RPG. Uh, my co-author for Swords, Emily Dresner, is at, um, at Multiplexer on Twitter as well. Awesome. And uh, we've got a whole section in our show notes, show notes on where to find the game. But the easiest thing is you can just search the Pellegrine Press website and buy directly from them. And a really cool thing to note is almost any Pell, in fact, not almost, the Pellegrine Press uh, pages for any particular game will have a downloads and resources section that often have free adventures, free character sheets, free guides, things like that, uh, as well as their number of blogs on the site that often provide that as well. Um, so we've got lots of links here, but you can get all of the games that we've watched through the Pelican Press site. They're all on drive through as well. Um, the Gumshoe SRD is available out there if you search for it. Um, you know, the rest of the time, Kevin, anything else you want to add about Swords of the Serpentine, which you recently released, or any of the other Gumshoe versions? Um, yeah, I think that what I would want to say is that um, I, for Swords, I did most of the rules. Emily Dresner, uh, who you might know her from her Dungeonomics blog posts over at Critical Hits, right. mm -hmm. uh, which are brilliant, uh, did most of the world building, and it's glorious. It is a... Um, now based city um a little bit like Ankh-Morpork or Lankmar or Kamor from Lies of Loch Lamora mm -hmm. um to get because when I first started that game I was kind of a Conan clone but you know who does Conan really well everybody with the Conan license that's who <laughs> and there weren't a ton of good city-based fantasy adventures uh and fantasy systems and so this turns out to be a pretty uh, special sweet spot in my design career it's great. I'm really I, proud I, of what we came up with. Yeah, you should be. Uh, I've played a, a scenario at a convention that was the whole table was just laughing, having a great time, which is both the system and that setting that's very evocative. It it has uh, just sort of like a cool Venice type feel. It's probably its closest real world analog, but with a lot of other aspects to it as well. And and it, yeah. it does a good job of, of encouraging players to play interesting characters that have stakes in the city and its elements, which is cool. I say a lot that the game is about um, consequences. It's about the, how the changes that you make in the world ripple ripple downwards, both politically and personally. Um, and uh, hopefully the mechanics support that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's something that I loved in D&D as well, right? And so I try to bring it to all my D&D games. Uh, yes. and uh, and I like how we did it here. Cool. Anything else, Kevin, you want to mention? I'm super grateful for being invited. Thank you oh, again. Uh, it's wonderful, Abby. Thanks for all the really incredible games and experiences you create. It's, it's much appreciated by everybody. I hope you all really enjoyed that interview with uh, Kevin Culp. Just fantastic. I really had a blast with it. Um, and Sean is back here, uh, more or less, uh, to... Uh, 
to silently watch over me as uh, I thank all of our patrons who keep our lights on. Thank you, all of our masters, Master of Dungeons supporters. Uh, we want to give a special shout out to all the Master of Realm supporters. Uh, both of you mean so much to us. The Master of Realm supporters, you are named in our show notes. And Master of the Multiverse, special shout out to all of you Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy, Andy Edmonds at Nerdonomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Laitman, and all the Knowles out there, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo at Dragoruso, Krishna Simone C, Joe Tyler, Matthias Valero, Matthias Valero at Twin Portals, James Walton and Graham Ward. Huge thanks to all of you. You can find Sean uh, at Sean Merwin on the Twitterverse. He's also at, at, uh, on uh, Mastodon and at Mastering D&D is our podcast on either Twitter or Mastodon. And you can find me at alphastream.org. And uh, gee, what are we going to do now? Uh, we're going to go create yet another gumshoe variant. And this one is going to be all about bunnies laying colored eggs. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs>